alphabetical regional rankings? Are we looking forward to seeing Albion ranked number one in region four? Regional lists. Looking forward to that. Regional lists. A listing of good teams by region. You know we're going to get questions about that. How is Albion ranked number one in region four? Strength of schedule. <laughs> strength of schedule and strength of alphabet. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 316, season 16, episode 16. Happy birthday, sweet 16. It's the podcast for October 16, October 24, 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com. I'm the guy who jinxed my alma mater by tuning into the live stream. Catholic up 24-0 on Merchant Marine. The moment I log in, Mariners scored. I could not have closed that window faster. The reverse jinx worked. You got out of that quickly. I am Greg Thomas. I am the Around the Nation columnist at D3Football.com. And Pat, we're through week eight. That means that we are halfway done with the season, the full season. We're closing in on the end of the regular season, but halfway done with the full Division Three season. And as has happened in most weeks, we're going to have to visit Platteville, Wisconsin. All all interesting things in Division Three <laughs> this season go through Platteville, don't they? They certainly seem to. That's uh, That's for damn sure. And here's the thing, Greg, you know, you and I and the rest of our team, we get our extra reps every season. We are there through week 16 each and every season. We do not take the playoffs off. It also sets us behind for recruiting. So we got that problem. We do. We don't take the playoffs for granted. We do, uh, but we are there all 16 weeks. Looking forward to some of those uh, fun Stag Bowl week podcasts where we smash into rooms not made for podcasting, but we do it anyway. <laughs> That's true, right? If you didn't like the audio quality a couple weeks ago when Greg was you know, coming to us from a hotel room, well, we've got another hotel room podcast coming up in uh, week 16. So you mark your calendars for podcasts, I think 324, something like that. And then podcast 325, which will be in a press box in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm looking forward to going out to Annapolis in a couple of weeks, do a walkthrough at the football stadium at the Naval Academy, find out what the broadcast position looks like, figure out where Frank Rossi and Greg and the crew are going to do that pregame show down on the sidelines. Find out if maybe instead we do that one podcast, not in our broadcast booth, but at a local establishment. We used to do that back when it was in Salem, Virginia. We could definitely try to do that in Annapolis. These are the things that I'm going out there to go take a look at. And I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, it should be a fun time. Looking like we're shaping up to be a very interesting tournament. Not sure who's going to be in, not sure who's going to be out. A lot of teams look like they couldn't make it to Annapolis a handful at least, but it seems to be week to week on who's playing championship level football. One team that looked like it could make it to Annapolis couldn't make it out of Platteville without a win on Saturday. That is a UW Whitewater. They went to Platteville. They went down. We're going to talk quite a bit about that game. We should just talk right now about that game. Whitewater started off well enough in this game at Platteville. 
They forced the Platteville fumble and scored on their second possession of the game. They had a short field. They went up 7-0. to zero. Platteville returned the favor, scoring their only offensive touchdown on the game on a short field following an interception of Evan Lewandowski. And then the defenses really went to work. I guess they were already working. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. But Whitewater, they would only allow 168 yards of total offense and nine first downs to the Pioneers. But while the Warhawks were forcing punts, 10 total punts for Platteville in the game, the Pioneer defense was doing one better by forcing turnovers. The Pioneers pressured Lewandowski into four interceptions on the day, one of them leading to the short field score that we just talked about. Another return for a touchdown by Colton Ingram that put Platteville up 14 to 10 just before halftime. And then a third interception that set up Platteville's fourth quarter field goal that closed the scoring. Yeah, it was interesting, surprising to see Lewandowski struggle so much. Uh, you know, you, you hearken back to week one at St. John's. He struggled in that game. Obviously, you know, that's at the beginning of the season, right? Things are new. You're getting the reins of the offense for the first time. We talked about this extensively. We talked about it with Evan Lewandowski on the course of this podcast. So maybe we won't go down that road again, but just uh, surprising to see how little success he and the Whitewater offense had on Saturday. Yeah, you know, the Pioneers, they only sacked Lewandowski twice, but the box score credits Pioneer defenders with nine quarterback hurries. That's a huge number. And it really kind of tells the story of the game. It's not really often that you see a... Wisconsin Whitewater offensive line get beat decisively, but they they did on Saturday. We're going to talk more with Ryan Munz, that's the head coach of UW Platteville, later on in our Fast Five. But we had to ask him up front about his team's defensive performance. We have some great players. We have really two really good defensive ends, and our secondary is uh, playing well. And what what people don't know, I guess, is last year they took a bunch of lumps and they had to figure that out. We put a relatively new system in coming out of the COVID era. And we were learning as a staff and they were learning as players and they finally get to see things second time around and they're able to understand their keys and checks and more importantly, play together. And that's been unbelievable. They run to the football and it's a different type of attitude over there on that on that side. You're probably asking some of the questions that we have been for most of the season or if nothing else for most of the weekend. What the heck happened in those two big losses and how has that changed? We're going to ask that later in Fast Five, but uh, one thing that you can definitely tell is over the course of the past couple of weeks, it's been really tough to win at UW-Platteville, and here is Munz's take on that. We talk about defending the Ralph and home field advantage and what that means in the WIAC and anywhere really you look at any type of athletic competition, it's always tough to travel and win, and so you got to take care of your own backyard, and we, we made the environment a little bit different this year uh, with some pregame stuff. And we also made the environment different with the crowd. And, and it, it definitely gives us that advantage. And, you know, when you're coming to our place, it's not a comfortable place to play anymore, which is uh, it's fun. That's what we wanted. We had someone try to tell us, Greg, that, uh, you know, just getting on a bus to get to Platteville is a pain. Getting out of Platteville on a bus is a pain. I know, you know, from being up here in Twin Citiesville, trying to get from here to Platteville or to Dubuque, Iowa, which is, you know, essentially just across the river. It is, it's a big time pain in the, you know what? I don't know that I put any stock into that. However, I just feel like Platteville had the right game plan. I don't know if I can't imagine Whitewater took this game for granted. This is a rivalry game with a trophy and everything. 
It is the Miner's Axe Trophy, which now belongs to Platteville and stayed in Platteville after making the trip back from Whitewater. Whitewater is not a team that takes any conference game for granted. You and I have both talked to Kevin Bullis over over the years, and winning the WIAC is their number one goal every year. It's what they show up to do, and then postseason goals happen after that, but they are pretty singularly focused on WIAC competition. It's not a lack of focus on their part. It's just Platteville had a great game plan. They executed it. They've now won three games against ranked opponents. None of those games have been particularly pretty offensively. This is a team, it's a little bit different than some of the older Platteville teams that we've seen have success where they're throwing the ball all over the place, tons of points. Uh, this is a little bit different. It's a little bit uh, old school football, really defensive minded, low scoring. And it's working for Ryan Munns. You know, they've they've got three wins against ranked opponents. I think Whitewater is the only other team that can say that this season and now the pioneers are in a position to move ahead and and we're going to talk about a little bit more but they're in control of their own fate in WIAC yeah we said it before in years past on this podcast I mean Mike Emmendorfer literally wrote the book on the spread offense you can go just google Mike Emmendorfer book on offense and you'll get a big long list of things that he has written about the spread offense but it's Ryan Munz's team now Before we go any further into our program, it's, uh, I think, right and just that we thank the people who helped make this podcast and D3Sports.com as a whole happen. And I'm talking about our subscribers who use the Patreon service. Patreon is a way that people can donate small or medium or large amounts of money to a content producer, in this case, like a website or a podcast, that sort of thing, on a monthly basis anywhere from like $3 a month up to $50 a month to help people like us focus on doing the work of bringing you the content rather than having to try to be business people. Because if we've learned nothing over the past quarter of a century, journalists are not business people. We would rather be journalists and the people who subscribe on Patreon help us just be journalists. That's right, Pat. Our Patreon subscribers help fuel all of the D3sports.com family of sites. Not just D3Football.com, but also D3Hoops.com. Gordon Mann, Brian Scott, I know yourself, you guys have all been working furiously behind the scenes to get content ready for Hoops season. Maybe some of our Patreon subscribers have seen some nuggets about early preseason top 25 polling. But yeah, it's during football season, though, that we see all of that support from our Patreon subscribers manifested in the regular cycle of coverage that our readers see throughout each and every week. Features columns around the nation, on-site coverage on Saturdays, the live scoreboard on game day, all of these things are made possible by our Patreon subscribers. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage our site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. If you're already a Patreon subscriber, thank you so much. You can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. To subscribe via Patreon, go to patreon.com slash D3Sports. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. If you want to give us a one-time donation, we welcome that as well. And you can do that by going to D3Sports.com slash help. All right, so we talk quite a bit about D3Football.com top 25 poll. 
I feel like we feel it is the best of the top 25 polls for Division Three football. I think it's not just our opinion. I believe there is, uh, you know, metrics basically every November where our poll is better at getting those playoff matchups correct than the AFCA top 25 poll. Our, our pollsters really dig into strength of schedule, really who have you beaten, who have you played, who are you going to play, and sometimes the other poll is a little bit more coaches just want to win. Coaches don't care maybe as much who you've won against. It's a little bit more weighted towards winning percentage. However, however, we're not talking about any of that right now. We're talking about the rankings that the NCAA produces in order to pick who makes the NCAA playoffs as an at-large bid to help determine who gets home games once those brackets are put together. And we're going to begin to see those this week, although they won't be as useful as you might expect. However, this is, I think, a good time of year to just talk about the Division Three football playoffs and the structure from a big picture standpoint. Yeah, so the structure is uh, there are three buckets of teams that there are three different ways to qualify. There's Pool A, which are the bids that are set aside for champions of conferences that qualify. To qualify, you need six teams in your conference. And we have 27 of those conferences, 28, except we know the NESCAC doesn't participate. So 27 conferences get Pool A bids. Pool B bids are set aside for independents or teams that play in conferences that don't otherwise qualify. And in Division Three, there is but one independent team this year. It is Hilbert. And that is not enough of those teams to qualify for a Pool B bid. So there are zero of those. And that leaves five Pool C bids, which are the true at-large bids. These are the bids that are set aside for conference runner-ups. And these are the bids that, are, that we're going to spend so much time focusing on over the next few weeks looking at regionally ranked wins, strength of schedule, who's got one loss or two loss, uh, and those kinds of things. Yeah, the NCAA, and this is something that is chosen by the Division Three membership, the various criteria that are used to select teams to any Division Three team championship postseason, whether that is football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, lacrosse, men's and women's soccer, you get it. It runs the gamut. Everybody is focused on results against Division Three competition. And note that it says results. It doesn't say winning percentage. It doesn't say number of losses, although in football that is often how it is interpreted, but it is results against Division Three competition. And then it is strength of schedule. Strength of schedule, there's a formula for that. It's a relatively standard strength of schedule format. You can find it on the d3football.com website if you would dig through the news menu. Lots of stuff under the news menu you might find interesting, including a list of everybody's strength of schedule so far here in the 2022 season. Uh, and then you have results against other teams who are in the regional rankings. So this is results against regionally ranked opponents. You might just see it as RRO, something like that. That is the commonly held abbreviation for results against other teams who are regionally ranked. And then you have, of course, head-to-head -head results or results against common opponents. If you are being compared to someone who you've played, yeah, that head-to-head -head result might well be instructive. That might be helpful. And similarly, if both of you have played Team Z over here, that might help you determine the difference between Team X and Team Y, assuming that there's some difference to be seen in those results. In football, man, we only have 10 games. Some conferences only have one non-conference game. Next year, the pack is going to go with zero non-conference games 
for some reason. There's not a lot of these criteria. And so therefore in football, Greg, it seems like sometimes this is almost as much art as it is science. It can be. We are fortunate this year that we have more results against ranked opponents data, particularly among teams that I expect will be in play for the at-large teams or in play for highly seeded spots in the tournament. Platteville is going to be a nexus point for a lot of teams that are going to be compared with one another, either for at-large selection or for seeding. So how you've done against Platteville is going to be pretty important to a lot of teams. At first glance, it looks like there's not a lot of criteria, but there is a lot of layers to some of those criteria. You mentioned results against ranked opponents. That's important. It does. It's not just wins and losses. It's sort of how you competed. You know, a result like losing by 30 to Mary Harden Baylor might be something that isn't super favorable compared to somebody who lost to Mary Harden Baylor by much less than 30. Yeah, the committee is definitely empowered to look at those sorts of things, right? Not necessarily like the difference between losing by 30 and losing by 28. But if you lose by, you know, a number where you're not in the game and somebody else is in the game, that's generally considered a difference in terms of a common opponent. Yeah, and who the ranked teams you are played, or at least where they're ranked. You know, the a result against a team that was ranked number one in a region is not necessarily identical to a result against a team that is ranked sixth or seventh in a region. So there are a couple of things that are happening here. First off, this week we will see the first set of regional rankings. It's really an alphabetical listing of the seven teams that will be listed in each region, frankly. There will be later a listing of one to seven in each region, and seven is the new number this year. Uh, no region is supposed to have more than seven teams ranked. So like last year, I'm just looking at the final regional ranking from 2021. Lycoming was ranked eight in region one. Susquehanna was ranked eight in region two. In region five, we've talked about this a lot. Wash U with a seven and three record was ranked in that region. Probably helped Wheaton get in the playoffs. UW River Falls was ranked number eight in region six. We'll have time to debate how, you know, those sorts of things might affect us in this season. But just know that... No longer can you game the system by sliding a team in at the number eight spot and having them magically count as a regionally ranked opponent because, well, there won't be a number eight spot in any region going forward. Yeah, you don't love losing rankings, I don't think. I think you lose a little bit of data that way. I think that will that may manifest itself a little bit more in other sports like basketball. Um, I think that we gained some data last year right when we went from the four buckets to the six buckets the six regions of teams i'm not sure that all of that data was useful like we went from ranking i think 40 teams in the past and then we went to ranking 46 teams and i'm just not sure that the rest of those teams that we added were necessarily helpful guides so we're back to 42 ranked teams uniform across each of the six divisions. And so more or less back to where we started. So you'll see those alphabetical rankings this week. What's important here is we're going to get into Dave McHugh territory here. If you know Dave McHugh, that is the host of Hoopsville over in the D3hoops.com world. It would get super granular if he talked about it, but I'm going to try to keep it 
high level, what happens is that the people in this week's alphabetical ranking are the people who are considered regionally ranked next week when that committee goes and says, okay, what is this team against regionally ranked opponents? Because one thing that's difficult is that someone who's regionally ranked might depend on somebody else who's regionally ranked in another region on another conference call and your team might get into the rankings because of that and knock the other team out of a ranking somewhere else. And it's too much of a moving target for people on these committees to really work with. So that is why results against regionally ranked opponents is backdated by a week. Oh, that was still geekier than I wanted it to be, Greg. I'm sorry. I know. Yeah, I think you got to run back to that D3 hoops, D3 football crossover podcast to really get into the nuts and bolts of all of that. That is ATN Podcast 301. It talks about a bunch of other things that are also happening in this year's January NCAA convention. It's still worth going back and listening to, promise. So we'll talk more as the weeks progress about those Pool C bids. If you hear Pool C or at-large, know that those are the same thing. There are five at-large spots and there are six regions, so not every region will get an at-large team. You could get three out of the same region. That has certainly happened before. We had two out of Region 6 last time around, and none out of Region 1, and none out of Region 4. So these things are definitely possible. People keep asking about three WIAC teams getting in. It's not impossible, obviously. Maybe less possible after this past week, but not impossible for two at-large teams from the same conference to both get in. It has happened twice before, but not in the years since we have had only five at-large bids. So I wouldn't get your hopes up too high about that either. Hey, I just dashed all sorts of people's hopes about getting in the playoffs. Ain't that fun? Pat Coleman, Dream Crusher. See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. We're back with Ryan Munts, head coach at UW-Platteville. Coach, this is your first year as head coach, and you talked earlier about the staff having to learn some things, right, in order to be, in order to get your program where it was. I think just working together and understanding the expectations. Like, yeah, we, we talk about it as a first-year head coach. Everything is new. I know I've been in the program for uh, quite a long time, and, and that's probably been the biggest head fake for Almost everyone around here is just because you're here doesn't mean you want to try new things and do different things and do it your way. And so it took time for the guys that were here that stayed here to relearn the process and then new people coming in from the staff and players to understand what that process is and how that thing connects and how we put those two pieces of the puzzle together. 16 years as an assistant coach. And I see the sign behind you on the wall. The last time that you guys <laughs> had the axe was when you were a player. What did it mean to get that back finally Saturday? Awesome. I mean, it, it meant more than what I think you can say in words. Uh, unfortunately, you know, being in this program for that long, I was a player in 2004 and I, I played that game and, and was able to bring it home. It's it's kind of sweet to do it twice with all due respect. Now, you always want to do it more than that. We want to do it three times. We want to make this a kind of a streak, but you live for the moment you live for now and you're excited to have it at your doorstep and you celebrate that victory for sure. You have two blowout losses to some really good teams, obviously, and then a bunch of really close wins. Was there something different between the first few weeks of the season, the way your team is playing now? What? Try to help us understand this. <laughs> We're an anomaly, right? We're messing up everybody's brain. We said that uh, last week against River Falls. We're yeah. like, man, we're making it hard on people to say, are they for real or is it just a, a fluke? And we did it again this week. And I know there's still some of those conversations. We scheduled a really tough non-con and you go up to Michigan Tech, a D2 program, yep. and you go toe-to-toe. We lost our starting quarterback in that game. And you know, people don't understand the full story yet. And 
you play Bethel and it's a, a 10 to seven ball game against a premier powerhouse and you win, you come out of that thing and they say, okay, that's different. And then Harden Simmons comes out in town and we lay an egg and we went through bye week and did the same thing. And we had a, a conversation after that Oshkosh game in, and you could tell internally that there was maybe some, some doubts and some questions because the system wasn't working or they hadn't seen the results yet. And we basically had to not start over, but reset a standard. Does that make sense? And, and say, listen, what you're doing or what we're doing is what we've done in the past. And that will guarantee us this. If you don't like that, that's time to change it. And so we have an opportunity middle of the season to set the standard and recreate something and get this thing back on track. Because most of the time you don't have those conversations till the end of the year and recruiting and the whole nine yards and I appreciate our guys of the response, right? Because there's a little bit of blind faith that goes into that where do you really have these guys? Are they really listening to your message and are they following through? And we felt we had a really good game plan against River Falls and we were able to execute it. And that was a a marquee win for us for the belief system. Mm -hmm. Obviously you come out and do it again two weeks in a row. Now it's a marquee win for the program. Without digging too deep into like three-way tiebreakers and that sort of thing, you guys are in control of your destiny. I think if you win out, you win the automatic bid in this conference. How does that feel right now? And how do you get the guys focused on that and not too, you know, up on what you guys have accomplished the last couple of weeks? The the hardest part for us now is we're not going to sneak up on anybody, right? right? That's not the case. And so we got to, I think you're right. We know we can control it. Uh, we also know that there's a, a, a place in time where if we don't, we're sitting on the outside and we're sitting at home for Thanksgiving and, and we don't want to do that. You mentioned earlier some new pregame things around the stadium. Tell us a little bit about what's fun at uh, Ralph E. Davis Stadium. I get all those names right? Yeah, 100%. Uh, the tailgating is unbelievable. I um, mean, we got people lining up for tailgating at 830 now. We have to have a police escort to stop the road so they can go through that. And so that game day atmosphere is there. We changed some of the, the way the, the visitors approach it, which it's been a kind of a, a sore subject in our eyes where we had to give up part of our locker room. Mm-hmm for the visitor and we thought it was maybe some of the best visiting accommodations in the country <laughs> uh, so we went a little uh, old school Iowa right and um, changed up their accommodations and I don't know if that's part of it but you, you kind of think that it's different for them and it makes it a little more difficult in the, in the psychological aspect of things you know we're not putting logos in the urinals yet but maybe we'll get to that point someday and then the crowd the fans the energy the third down noise making it difficult for those offenses to communicate and just the buy-in. It, it, it's been unbelievable. What colors the walls? Now I have to ask since you mentioned Iowa. <laughs> They're white still. I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> we, we talked about getting them pink, but they, they wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> I would think there's plenty of shades of orange and blue that would probably be pretty good in there. Yeah, there would. Yep. <laughs> you know, this is the beauty of the automatic bid system, isn't it? It's a team like Platteville that can schedule aggressively, maybe even more aggressively than Whitewater or St. John's did, take their lumps in that first month of the season and then still have the time to have it all fall into place and compete for a conference championship and potentially more. Now, Platteville controls their own destiny. It's challenging, but the Pioneers, even after getting housed by 40 points in back-to-back games, they are the only team that can win the WIAC right now without any help. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and I'm giving my game ball to North Central linebacker BJ Adamchik. 
The Cardinals got a defensive stop on their first possession on Saturday against WashU when the Bears' fake punt on fourth down from midfield was flagged for an ineligible receiver downfield. That was a play on which WashU had completed the pass and gotten past the sticks for what would have been a first down. The Bears didn't get the ball back until the closing seconds of the first quarter, and on that second drive, the Bears go for it again on fourth down and three from the 23. That pass complete, and again, good enough for first down yardage, but as Kenneth Hamilton fought for extra yards, Adamchik came up, forced the fumble at the seven-yard line, getting the key turnover, which Nick Rummel pounced on at the two-yard line. In addition to that forced fumble, Adamchik had 10 total tackles, and his performance, one of many on a day in which North Central shut out a ranked team 31 to nothing. That's what gets my game ball. More game balls for Cardinals. Saturday in the nation's capital, two of the new Max undefeated leaders met, and it was the homestanding Catholic Cardinals getting a 41-33 win over Merchant Marine. Catholic quarterback Nico Casares came ready to play. He connected on three touchdown passes in the first quarter to stake the Cardinals to an early 21-0 lead. Casares finished the day completing 22-31 passes for 349 yards and five touchdowns for his outstanding performance in helping put Catholic on the precipice of a NUMAC championship. Nico Caceres gets my game ball. And someone talked to me this week talking about what's coming up this week uh, between Springfield and Merchant Marine saying, you know, the game for the de facto NUMAC championship. And I said, hey, hello, you are talking to a Catholic U grad right here, right now. Let's at least play that game before we anoint either Springfield or Merchant Marine, the conference champion. Catholics still with Springfield coming up in week 11, so they're not out of the woods yet, but uh, knocking off Merchant Marine, definitely a big step. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. That may be the most incredible stat. My stat of the week comes from the Cortland-Utica game. I could do a litany of things that aren't my stats, like, you know, Cortland leading 34-7 at the half, despite having the ball for just 8 minutes and 30 seconds. It's not the 10 minute and 31 second drive to end the game for Cortland. Before that, Cortland had had the ball for just over 15 minutes the entire afternoon. No, it's the number of punts for Cortland on Saturday, that number being zero. All right, yes, I hear you Red Dragons fans out there. What the heck, dude? That's the third time we've done that this season. Even that is not my stat. In fact, my stat is that before this season, the last time Cortland had gone an entire game without punting was 1991. That is my stat. And it comes in Cortland's 48-21 to win against Utica in a battle of unbeaten teams. And I'm going to turn to defense for my stat of the week, Pat. This week, the Endicott goals dominated the University of New England 43-0. In the game, the goals had 10 sacks, which is not my stat. The goals also had 17 tackles for loss in the game. University of New England ran 70 plays, which means that just about one in four University of New England offensive snaps ended in a tackle for loss. That's amazing, but that is also not my stat. The shutout loss is Endicott's fourth shutout of the season, setting a new program record for shutouts in a single season with three at least games to go. Those four shutouts, setting a new standard of stinginess for the program is my stat of the week. Standard of stinginess. I like it. It's feeling very alliterative this week. Absolutely. Awesome. Amazing. I'm a real wild It's a time where we go through and pick out spotlights and bright spots in each region for the week. I'm going to start with region one. And for me, what's fun in the one is the Saturday that Bowdoin College had, the one in which the Polar Bears defeated Wesleyan 28 to 26. It's been a tough 
21st century for the polar bears they've had way more way more one win seasons and no win seasons than they've had winning seasons in that span Bowden went six and two in 2005 and they went five and three in 1998 that's how far back you have to go to find the second winning season and they had one win or less 11 times in that same span so a second win for this season for Bowden lots of fun for that program in its third season under coach BJ Hammer Bowden actually got out to a 21-7 lead and led 28-14 entering the fourth, a quarter in which Wesleyan rallied, but Bowden got a blocked PAT and then a stop on a two-point conversion to preserve that win by a score of 28-26. The ECFC is fun in the one. Alfred State and Gallaudet entered Week 8 undefeated in ECFC play and both fell at home on Saturday. Alfred State was upended in overtime by Dean. Congratulations to Andre Murphy on his first win. While Gallaudet nearly came back from a 26-2 deficit in the fourth quarter. Only to come up just short in a 26-24 loss against SUNY Maritime. Those results bring Castleton back to the top of the table in the ECFC with just one loss. Alfred State still has Castleton and Gallaudet left on the schedule. Anybody can beat anybody in this league, so the last three weeks are going to be exciting as those three teams, and maybe there's a surprise team in the ECFC still chasing that postseason bid. If you want to know more about Andre Murphy, Dean College, and the ECFC, go listen to Podcast 306. Greg, who's breaking through in the two? There's a new record holder in the two as Gettyberg's Chris Singleton Jr. blocks two kicks in the Bullets' 60-7 to defeat at Johns Hopkins. The two blocked kicks, both on PAT attempts, give Singleton Jr. six blocked kicks on the season, tying him for the most all-time in a single season in Centennial Conference history. Breaking through to go block those kicks, the seeming kings of block kicks also reside in the two, and Cortland did some of that on Saturday as well, as Sam Maddy blocked a 45-yard field goal attempt by Utica's Corey Lichtman. This, by the way, also not my stat, and it's not even my breaking through in the two either. That instead goes to Morrisville State, which is still having its breakthrough year. The Mustangs have only won more than six games one time since moving to D3 from the junior college ranks starting in 2006, but Morrisville stands 6-1 and one right now, two and one in the empire eight and whether the Mustangs finish something like seven and three or something more like nine and one is what hangs in the balance here in these final three weeks as they finish at home to Utica at Brockport and home to Hartwick. Yeah. I saw something said the Mooresville state has beaten four teams that they lost to last year. That's an interesting, interesting nugget and really shows you the progress that they're making there at Mooresville state. Pat, what do you see in the three? Well, in the three, I see you, you guys down at Austin College. We saw the Ruse ending their 13-game losing streak and doing so with an impressive, some might say singular focus on running the football, winning at East Texas Baptist by the score of 13-10. to 10. So Austin is a member of the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference for the majority of its sports, but the SCAC only has a few football-playing members, teams like Trinity, teams like Southwestern. It's just not enough to have a viable football conference. So those schools play their football elsewhere. And for Austin, that used to be the Southern Athletic Association, but starting in 2021, it's been the American Southwest Conference. And in any year, in any Greg Thomas conference ranking, that is a step up from the SAA to the ASC. 
So the Ruse have been on this option kick all season. They've thrown just 34 passes in seven games, and they've only completed eight of them. This was the first game in which Austin College didn't even attempt any passes, however, and the 55 carries and 210 yards was enough to hold on as the defense stopped ETBU twice on fourth down in the fourth quarter to keep the lead secure. And I see a couple of close calls for conference leaders in the three this week. Huntingdon went back and forth on the road at Methodist and held on over the last 14 minutes of the game to win 38 to 35, while Trinity eked out a 21 to 14 win at home over Barry. Close counts, though, and Huntingdon appears to have cleared their last significant hurdle with just Greensboro, NC Wesleyan, and LaGrange left on their schedule. Trinity still has a little bit of work to do to secure the SAA title. The Tigers, they'll travel to center next week. Did you have an opportunity to watch any of that Trinity Berry game? I did have Trinity Berry on one of my screens, and so I had an eye on that occasionally as I was floating back and forth. I believe they were on at the same time as Whitewater and Platteville, which was taking up most of my attention. Another thing I saw in the three was just this amazing camera shot that Trinity had on its broadcast. You see the drone shot they had? It's like you have a goddamn blimp. At a D3 game, it was amazing. It was so cool to see drone shot on a D3 broadcast. I hadn't, I hadn't done like the the mental leap to blimp in my head when I was watching that. But you're exactly right. That is exactly what it looks like. Those were really great shots. You could see a really nice crowd at Trinity for that game. Obviously, a lot of excitement there for Tiger football right now. But yeah, those were those were cool shots and. Quick shout out to the Trinity broadcast, which they do a really good job week in and week out. Not to put too much of a pun on it there, but uh, that drone shot really elevates that broadcast to one of the top handful of broadcast productions in Division Three football. That's what the four by four's for, son. That's what the four by four's for. Greg, what's the score in the four? The score is mostly settled in the North Coast. The NCAC opened week eight with a multitude of messy scenarios involving potential one-loss tri-champions, but Denison's 28-10 win at Wittenberg, coupled with DePaul's 22-21 comeback win at Ohio Wesleyan, leaves just DePaul and Wabash, who were 66-20 winners at Oberlin this week, by the way, tied at the top of the conference with four and one records. In the next two weeks, Wabash hosts Hiram and Kenyon, DePaul goes to Kenyon and then hosts Oberlin. Absent some kind of really monumental upset, those two teams will go into the Monon Bell Classic playing for the Monon Bell, of course, as well as the North Coast Athletic Conference Championship. Wayne Ruby is scoring in the four as well. The Mountain Union receiver put up five catches for 153 yards and two touchdowns on Saturday as the Purple Raiders defeated Wilmington 63-3. to So he has 100 receiving yards and at least two touchdowns in every game this season for Mountain Union. And he has caught 47 touchdown passes in his career, continuing to move his way up the career record ladder for that program. So when you move up the record book for Mountain Union in like any category, you begin to get into some names. And in this case, 47 touchdown catches is good for fourth all time or tying with none other than some guy named Pierre Garçon. If Mountain Union makes a deep playoff run, Threatening the record of 63 touchdown catches by Cecil Shorts is not out of the realm of possibilities. 200 yards and two touchdowns per game? Every single game. I don't know. One of us picked uh, Wayne Ruby Jr. as an Offensive Player of the Year at the beginning of the season. (laughs) Just throwing that out there. I'm guessing of the two of us, I know which one is the person. 
also for uh, Mount Union, I was just really gratified to see photos from that game that showed a sticker on the back of the Mount Union helmets with just the name Lenny. We talked about this in last week's podcast. Uh, Lenny Reich was still fighting his battle with myelofibrosis. He passed away on Monday, and obviously it's been a tough week emotionally, not only for the University of Mount Union and their athletics teams and that community, but also really the entire Division Three community of sports information directors. Lenny Reich was a prominent member of that community, a leader of that community, a recently inducted Cosida Hall of Famer, and you know he will be sorely missed, including by this program. It is really hard to go from that into Mambo number five, Greg, so I'm just going to skip the music on this one. Yeah, Pat, who's who's going into overdrive in the five? Benedictine, I'd say, went into overdrive on Saturday. They beat Rockford 70-27. to Just a few weeks after Tyler Jarnigan threw seven touchdowns in a game for the Eagles, another quarterback, Evan Wyjajewski, making his second start, went one better, throwing eight touchdowns and resetting that record that Jarnigan had tied a few weeks before. Nick Shelton caught three of those touchdown passes, as did DeAndre Holliday. Sammy Ayash caught... The other two, you may be asking, hey, I've, I've heard of that Tyler Jarnigan guy. You've talked about him in the past. Why is he not still quarterbacking? It's a guy who went down with kind of a freak football injury early in the second quarter against St. Norbert. And, you know, they kind of struggled the rest of that game. But offenses seem to pick it back up a little bit. And now we've got, you know, another guy throwing great goo gobs of touchdown passes for Benedictine. Beloit kicked it into overdrive Saturday with a 56-0 win over Lawrence. The Buccaneers scored every which way, passing, rushing, kick return, and a pick six en route to a route of the visiting Vikings. That win emphatically ends a 21-game losing streak for Beloit dating back to October 12, 2019. Now, how often do you break a 21-game losing streak by winning 56 to nothing? Rippon did not go into overdrive in the five, but they definitely went on a drive after they took a 16-0 lead. University of Chicago came back to tie at 16-16, including with a two-point conversion from eight yards out after a penalty to tie that game up. Red Hawks go back down the other way, 65 yards, and it sounded like this. The snap, the placement, the kick is up, and the kick is here, right down the middle. And Rippon takes a 19-16 lead with 51 seconds. Chicago will get the ball with no timeouts. We'll talk more about kicks. Who's getting their kicks in the six? Six Minnesota Morris is getting their kicks in the six. The Cougars are on a five-game win streak and lead the UMAC with a perfect 4-0 record. Saturday, the Cougars recorded their second straight shutout with a 47-0 win over Martin Luther. Freshman defensive lineman Chase Meyer went nuts in this game, recording 3.5 sacks, five tackles for loss, and forcing three fumbles. Who's getting their kicks in the six? For me, I'm going to go with Lewis and Clark. So the Pioneers have had a pretty good season this year so far under new head coach Joe Bushman. And on Saturday, they won an overtime game for the first time since overtime became a thing in football back in 1996. And that was thanks in no small part to running back Deontay Navarrete, who scored three touchdowns on Saturday, including one with 228 left 
to tie the game, then another in overtime to win it 47-41 to over Puget Sound. This is a fun back-and-forth game to watch in the late afternoon, one which Puget Sound tied at 13 midway through the second quarter, and then nobody led by more than 10 points the rest of the way. It was the kind of game which, when the Pioneers scored to come within one with 2.28 left, I was pretty sure they needed to go for two to win the game. But in fact, no, Lewis and Clark kicked the extra point to tie it. Then they got their first defensive stop of the second half in the final two minutes. Then they got another stop in overtime before the offense got its shot. And it was all Navarrete the rest of the way as he had four carries for the required 25 overtime yards and the score. 20 carries for 151 yards for Navarrete. There's so many Pronunciation 101 names here in this podcast. And um, thank you to all those SIDs who respond to my emails on Sunday afternoon asking about pronunciation clarification. One more thing before we leave Lewis and Clark, and it's just to talk about how much fun it was to watch their quarterback play. That's because his name is Cruz Montana. And yes, he wore number 16 uh, in a time where you know parents are naming their future quarterbacks after the Brett Favre's and the Drew Brees era. I'm looking at you, Sagala family. Uh, it's nice still to see a guy named Montana out there slinging the ball around in Division Three football. And then I have one more thing. I can't leave this game. Our assistant producer, Damar O'Malley, points out that Silas Washington for Puget Sound also could really run the ball. 19 carries for 139 yards. Not that too many people were stopping too many people in that game defensively, but guess which game we had on on the big screen in the 4 p.m. slot on Saturday. Wait, I'm not done. Wait, there's more. Before we leave the six, Linfield might not have necessarily gotten its kicks in in the six, but they got their pick sixes in in the six as the Wildcats got one of those on the first Pacific Lutheran drive in each half and went on to beat the Lutes 45 zip. I'm done hogging the microphone. I yield my time. We yield to the mailbag. Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. You know how it is. We put out the call on Twitter, but we'll take questions on email. We'll take questions in DMs. We'll take questions, however, live on Twitter as well, especially if you use that D3FB hashtag. And here is one from Mike Schultz. You remember Mike Schultz at... Mikey underscore Schultz, S-H-O-U-L-T-Z, asking what team from the bottom 10 ranked conferences in your conference rankings has the best chance to win a playoff game? I like this question quite a bit because we talked about a lot of things in terms of regional rankings and a little bit about at-large bids, but we didn't really talk about the geographical nature of the Division Three playoff bracket and how it might allow some teams in some of these conferences a better chance to win a game than some other teams. Indeed. And I think if you're looking at the bottom 10 ranked conferences and you can see our conference rankings in our around the nation piece that we did somewhere around the first or second week of October, you will see that our bottom 10 conferences are the SCIAC, the NCAC, the Midwest Conference, the NACC, the NUMAC, the USA South, the MASCAC, the HCAC, the ECFC, and the UMAC. Now, I think as I'm looking through these, initially, my first reaction here is to I'm looking at a team that is maybe going to get a matchup that is favorable because of geography. And Pat, I'm zeroing in on the USA South and Huntington. Huntington is a team that we've already seen push Linfield, who we know is a very, very good team. Uh, We've seen Huntington play well against other top ranked teams. They've done well against Oshkosh recently as well. Huntington where they're at in Alabama 
there are not a ton of places they can get to within 500 miles. 500 miles. Yeah, there it is. So there's a chance that Huntington could wind up with a favorable matchup that isn't necessarily seed driven. It's more geography driven and they could find themselves playing a team that is more in their ranking area in that twenties ish kind of thing, or maybe an unranked team. They could also, they could also wind up over in Texas. We won't know how that's going to shake out until we know who's in the tournament and how the teams can fit together. But Huntington is a team that I would look at that could get an advantageous matchup and could win a playoff game. Yeah. I think one of the places you really want to look for things such as this is where are you going to find somebody who's going to get a middle seed, right? You know, and obviously, right. We don't actually see the division three playoffs, which is bullshit. You cannot put that together without having seedings. You could just look at the final regional rankings and get some idea of how each team is actually seeded in this playoff. So where's an opportunity for a team to maybe get a home game? Sometimes, as Greg alluded to, geography helps. I think also every time we ever put together a mock bracket in basketball or in football, one of the keys is these teams in Ohio that are kind of the glue that holds the East and the West part of Division Three football together. So could a, a North Coast Athletic Conference team get a home game against somebody who's uh, a runner-up in another conference? Could the NCAC winner be the third best team in Region 4 and maybe get a four seed and get a home game? Maybe not. I don't know, in any given year, but I think that's another spot where you might be able to come away with a W. Also, similarly, I think the new Mac has a really good opportunity, especially geographically if it's Springfield. Uh, sometimes, you know, the winner of the ECFC can't go a lot of places because, you know, Maine, when teams in Maine won that league, you couldn't get very far out of Maine and still be within 500 miles. So that's a possibility for a first round win for that conference as well out of the new England conferences that are listed here. The new Mac has the highest likelihood of having a team that might have that kind of match. Yeah. Springfield can be a tough matchup for a team that is not used to seeing Springfield, maybe a mass CAC champion and mass Dartmouth. They can score a ton of points um, with the right kind of matchup. Maybe they could win a game as well. Great question. People who have more questions, feel free to at us. And use the D3FB hashtag. We know we will see lots of questions on Twitter, including like Lucas Mitzel's question about whether the committee will be updating numbers and re-ranking after every playoff round again this year. No, no, that is not going to happen. Our understanding is that the big championships committee, the one that oversees all of the championships in Division Three, not just football, was pretty explicit to them about how you're not supposed to do that after they went ahead and did that last year. Coming up on week nine this week, and my week nine game to watch is RPI at number 12, Ithaca. Bombers sitting pretty at 7-0, but as always of late, they have three of their toughest games to end the season. As they host RPI, they go to Union, and they play Cortland for the Cortica Jug in Yankee Stadium. And Joe Sager wrote about this for us back in the first week of October, but Ithaca knows it has to keep sharp on this final set of games. Last year, Ithaca started 7-0, and they finished 8-2 and and out of the playoffs. In 2019, the same, started 7-0, then 8-2 and and tacking a bowl game uh, loss to W&J to boot. Those are the years where the schedule has been unbalanced in this manner in the Liberty League. But Ithaca finished 8-3 and in 2018 and in 2017 as well, losing to RPI both times. 
Those are all the years that Ithaca has been in the Liberty League, and Ithaca hasn't beaten RPI once. Suffice it to say, there's nobody at Ithaca that is looking past this one, and, and RPI is coming off a bye week, so it has had an extra week to prepare. Yeah, that one could be another 15 to 13 Liberty League grinder there. <laughs> uh, right, one in which RPI could win with a safety, with a blocked punt touchdown, and who knows what, some sort of Hail Mary at the end of a half. Defensive right? two-point conversion, and there's nothing nothing off-limits in this series. My game to watch this week is going to be Johns Hopkins at Susquehanna. Both of these teams enter Week 9 with 7-0 and records because everybody else in the Centennial Conference has lost twice. The winner of this game needs just one more win in the final two weeks to clinch the automatic bid. Important for Susquehanna because they've still got a trip to Muhlenberg still looming, and that could be a non-necessity for them if they can beat Hopkins. The Riverhawks, they've given up just 22 points in their last five games. Hopkins, as we know, has an explosive offense, and they're going to test that Susquehanna defense. I don't know exactly where this game ranks on the list of biggest home games in Susquehanna history, but it has to be up there, right? This should be a great atmosphere in Sellingsgrove for this top 25 showdown and a shot at a conference championship. Lots of other games in week nine to keep an eye on. Look out for River Falls at Whitewater, Linfield at George Fox, Lacrosse at Oshkosh, Howard Payne at Hardin-Simmons, Randolph-Macon at Washington and Lee, John Carroll at Muskingum, Utica at Morrisville, Springfield at Merchant Marine, Rowan at Salisbury, Platteville at Stout, Carlton at Gustavus Adolphus, Aurora at Benedictine, Pacific at Lewis and Clark, Pomona Pitzer at Redlands, and Minnesota Morris at Northwestern of Minnesota. Links to stats and video for all of those games at the d3football.com scoreboard. Greg, I think I put you on the spot like three times in last week's episode, so it's definitely your turn to go first. Okay, let's see. Pat, this week I'm just going to do, we're going to dial it back a little bit, maybe a little simpler on the spot for you. I want you to rank these games in order of margin of victory from most, so the largest margin of victory, to the smallest margin of victory. And those games are Central at Coe, Randolph-Macon at Washington and Lee, River Falls at Whitewater, and Mona Pitzer at Redlands. You haven't really given me any gimmies here, have you? No, Pat. We're, we're late in the season. We've got to earn everything <laughs> here on On the Spot. So my least close game, I think, is going to be Central at Coe. I just feel of all of these games here, this is the one that could most likely be won by more than two touchdowns. For the rest of them, I'm not going to be able to apply any like science. And I think I'm just going to have to go with my gut here. My famous, famous gut. So let's see. Largest margin of victory was Central at Co. And then second largest, I'm going to go with Pomona Pitzer at Redlands. Care to pick a winner in that game, or are you just going to... I didn't think I was required, so I am, uh, I'm not going to pick a winner in that game. Uh, I think Pomona Pitzer probably wins that game. Then I'm going to take uh, River Falls at Whitewater. I'm not sure that Whitewater necessarily comes back out and has this big, angry moment right after you lose a game. I just don't know that River Falls is going to be allowing of Whitewater to get crazy far away from them so that'll be my third largest margin of victory and then i think randolph making it wnl will be the closest hey it gives me a chance to talk about overtime right the one in which hampton sydney beat wnl 44 43 in overtime in lexington virginia back on saturday and i think i see another close game for wnl here all right greg 
I have a game for you called Winning is Easy as ABC. Okay. And so for you, you can take as many or as few games here as you like. What I want you to do is pick a team to win whose school begins with the letter A. And then if you feel comfortable with any of the teams that begin with the letter B, pick a letter B as a winner, pick a letter C, pick a letter D, pick a letter E. You could go as far or as not far as you want. You don't have to pick a Q, a V, or an XYZ because no Division Three football schools begin with those letters. But I thought maybe you'd like to pick up to 21 winners for Saturday. Listeners, I know, would love that. <laughs> I am scrolling through our list of games, and immediately the A's are, there's some tough games. Adrian at Albion? I don't know. That's not... That's not a gimme, and you don't want to buzz out on this on the first pick, right? So Probably not, no. I'm going to go with Aurora over Benedictine. Starting with a toughie. All right. That's a big game. It is a big game. I'm just, I'm a believer in Aurora's overwhelming offense. They scored 28 points against St. Norbert, which is like 150 against anybody else. I'm going to go with Brockport over Buffalo State. You give me the Cortland Red Dragons over Alfred all day. There's your C. Got a letter D. We're going to go with DePaul over Kenyon. Delaware Valley right. off this week. Usually a strong option there for the letter D. How about letter E? Go ahead and give me Endicott over Curry. For my F, I will take Franklin over Manchester. Little HCAC playback callback. Indeed. We will take the Geneva Golden Tornadoes over Bethany. H. We've already done an HCAC game, so we'll go with Heidelberg over Wilmington in the OAC. It might be closer than expected. I like that game. Now, going against everything in recorded human history, I'm going to pick Ithaca over RPI in a break breakthrough historic win for the Bombers. We do have good Jays. I will pick Johns Hopkins over Susquehanna. Wow. You're going out on a limb here back to back picks. You can carry this chain as long as you want. You can continue on to K, or you could call it here. <laughs> I am not going to take the hint. Who's uh, who's K? Kalamazoo? Kings? Kalamazoo? Ooh, not going to be Kalamazoo. Kings, yes. We will go Kings over Alvernia. And we will stop there. We could go for it. Uh, we'll do Linfield off the top of my head. You get all the way to M and you get halfway through the alphabet. There's so many schools that begin with M in Division Three. There really are. Many, many. Multitude of schools. Yes. I'm going to go with Mass Dartmouth over Bridgewater State. We'll stop there because it is an hour show. <laughs> yeah, ostensibly an hour, <laughs> give or take. Uh, if I were continuing, I would take North Central over North Park. Really on a limb. I'd take Ohio Wesleyan over Oberlin. I'd take Pacific Lutheran over Willamette. I'd get to skip Q. I'm super happy about that. I'd go with Rose Holman over Defiance. I'd take Salve Regina over the University of New England. Trinity of Connecticut over Bowdoin. UW Eau Claire over UW Stevens Point. Mm. <laughs> I get to count those U's. Well, I was supposed to take University of New England. I don't think I could. Or Sinus over Gettysburg. Oh, uh, yeah. I take our sinus over Gettysburg. I take Vassar over. No, sorry. No Vassar. I would take Wabash over Hiram. 
And then I would be out because York of Pennsylvania, Yeshiva, and York of New York do not play football in Division Three. Last week, I asked Pat to play West We Can and predict how many Wesleyans would win in Week 8. Pat said two Wesleyans would win, specifically Wesleyan over Bowdoin and Illinois Wesleyan over Carthage. We know already that Bowdoin managed to win their game against Wesleyan in the NESCAC. Illinois Wesleyan did win. And they are the only Wesleyans to win on Saturday. Wesleyans one in four overall in week eight. Wesley College, how much we miss you. I asked Greg to play HCAC playback and basically pick all four Heartland Collegiate Athletic Conference games since the four teams with unbeaten conference records were all playing each other and the four teams with winless conference records all did the same. Greg picked Rose Holman over Franklin, the most emphatic winner of the day, with the Fightin' Engineers winning 49-0. The Fightins are tied with none other than Mount St. Joseph atop the HCAC as the Lions pulled away in the fourth quarter to Hanover, winning by 15. In the, let's call it the consolation bracket, Greg picked Defiance over Anderson. He was a winner there, 32-22. And he picked Manchester over Bluffton. Manchester had so many chances to win this game, where indeed one three-yard gain in either the third or the fourth overtime would have done it. But instead, Bluffton came out in overtime number five and won it 46-44. Three out of four for Greg on HCAC playback. The five overtime lottery. We'd love to see it with those dueling two-point tries. We're going to go to Quick Hits Accountability, where our top 25 upsets zeroed in on Albion and Wisconsin Oshkosh. Both of those teams got pressed, but both of those teams won. Whitewater, of course, was the only top 25 team to be upset this weekend. The entire panel was correct on finding a previously one-loss team to fall out of postseason contention. Trine, Olivet, and Merchant Marine, they all picked up losses that will put the brakes on their postseason hopes. Merchant Marine, they may have a path to pool A, uh, but that road is much more difficult now. Tips got a little ahead of himself this week, picking Howard Payne to lose to Harden-Simmons. That game is in week nine, and we'll revisit that next week in Quick Hits Accountability. We need a better name for Quick Hits Accountability, but I like the fact that we are going to carry through, and Ryan Tips will have seven categories in week nine instead of six of them uh, we were looking for the closest game in the new mac and it was actually the late merchant marine score that made winners for both greg and frank as catholic beat the mariners by just eight norwich beat mit by 10 and springfield beat wpi left right and center fullback dive and all of those other things it was also a tie in the karma chameleon challenge the Brockport Golden Eagles and the Western New England Golden Bears, they were winners for Team Gold and Green. Team Red got winners from the Rip and Red Hawks and the Red Dragons of Cortland. That's a win for Frank and a hat tip to Logan, who picked Gold and Green, but did say the most likely outcome would be a tie. Yeah, those picks, they come and go. They come and go. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 316, released on October 24th, 2022. Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the season. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, a classmate, a fellow alum about this show, and you can rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. I went through and looked at... 
reviews on Spotify, by the way. Thankful for all of those five-star reviews for people listening on the Spotify platform. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. Yeah, that's it. You hear it. We use more of his tracks in this podcast as well. You can find them at djmentos.com. You can also find him on Spotify. Thanks to the co-founder, Keith McMillan, and thanks to my co-host, Greg Thomas. Can we mention that that game is being played at Yankee Stadium in every podcast? I think we have so far. It sure seems like it. I mean, I'm excited about it. I First off, we're going to get a pretty close to a top 10 matchup, and it's going to be... Apparently, from all reports, it's going to be a sellout. It's going to be another one of those most attended games in Division Three history. So I'm pretty happy about that. Everybody who bought a ticket, please go inside and watch. It's a good. It's going to be a good game. Wabash and DePaul are playing at Lucas Oil Stadium. You go into the stadium, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely, you do. It seems like so many options for these things to happen. And I'm, I'm glad that they're happening. I would love to still see more of them. Yeah, it's fun to do an event thing, but you have to find one team who wants to give up the home game. One team who wants to give up the home game, and what really makes these things happen is the marketing muscle of the major sporting team or sporting venue that this event is associated with. Like the reason that St. John's versus St. Thomas was so successful at Target Field initially was because the Minnesota Twins really pushed that heavily to their season ticket holders as a unique opportunity and experience. And, you know, there's big, big marketing muscle behind Cortica at the Meadowlands and now Cortica at Yankee Stadium. That's the kind of thing that you need in order to make that happen. That's the the missing piece. And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs> <laughs>